Hey everyone, welcome to a long overdue episode of the um, No Cartridge Leftist Book Club. Uh, I'm sorry for the lateness on this one, I really just kind of ran into a lot of stuff that I was doing. Uh, the good news here is that I've come up with some ways to uh, become a little more consistent with this, and we should have pretty uh, smooth sailing for the next couple weeks. Um, the other reason I had a little bit of difficulty with this is because the um, the subject, the topic for this one is, is, is quite hard uh, in some ways, and very, very simple in others. Um, it's a kind of a perfect uh, distillation of Capital Volume 1, insofar as it is uh, very, very difficult uh, in the, you know, like, in the minutia of it, like, when you're actually working your way through it, it's quite hard, but um, in terms of the general idea, you can always describe it in about two sentences. Um, why Marx does this, what the point of it all is, uh, is something that I'm going to try and unpack a little bit in this episode, but mostly what I'm going to want to do is explain the section on the money commodity, uh, which is the third section in the commodity chapter. Now, we've touched a little bit already on the surplus value section. Uh, I'm sorry, not the surplus value section, uh, although we have touched on that, the uh, commodity fetish section. And uh, while there's still a little bit left in there that I'd like to cover, I'm going to just put that as a little stinger at the beginning of next week's episode, because I just think we need to keep moving forward. Um, and fortunately for you, next week's episode will be on Wednesday. So we're right back on schedule. Uh, a pretty pretty quick turnout. Now, uh, the, pa the passages I'm going to be considering today are from the third uh, section of the commodity chapter. So um, if you'll turn with me, uh, you might be able to hear my pages at this point. If you're in the same uh, edition as me, the Ben Fowkes uh, Penguin edition, uh, turn on to 138. And we see the value form or exchange value. Now, Marx goes into this a little bit, and we'll touch on it. But this is one of the places where you can get really confused in capital. And I urge you to, um, if you are getting confused with this, uh, kind of employ a, um, a simplification device, basically. Uh, Marx actually, and we'll see at a point in this, suggests you do the same thing. Um, some of the ideas in here are dicey in the way that, say, the Hegelian difference between appearance and essence is dicey, right? Like in the real world and sort of like the world around us, the everyday world, there's no real reason we should think that any of this is hard or like uh, that we should need this distinction, right? So uh, the distinction between value and exchange value in practical terms is nothing. Uh, the difference between exchange value and value in terms of capital is that exchange value is something that we said a commodity gets once it enters the market or uh, a commodity just has, right? It can be exchanged in the market. So we're either using it to use it or using it, uh, valuing it in order uh, to see what it could get us if we sell it. Um, and value itself is sort of this white whale for economists in that, like, or for the economist Marx is talking about, in that it's very difficult to determine where value comes from, where, do, what, what produces value in the commodity. It's not an innate thing. It's not as if like, you know, um, I sell you my widget and the widget has, uh, you know, 75 uh, quants in it. And a quant is a natural uh, value machine that, you know, is in everything in the entire world. And we all know what things cost because they have a natural amount. Uh, Marx uses the example of weight, right? Weight is a, a sort of like a quant in this way, right? You can put a a set of feathers on a scale and measure it out and balance it out with a set of iron. And you could say like, okay, like 800 feathers weighs as much as, uh, you know, a quarter of a, an ingot of iron or however much it would be, right? Like, you know how scales work. Um, that's weight. Everything has weight. It is a natural thing that, that, that objects in the world have. Um, and that weightedness is something that, you know, regardless of whether we're considering it in pounds, kilograms, uh, you know, whatever, uh, stones, uh, the, um, the weight of it is actually just you know you can you can come up with some sort of specific or or um, universal measure of the weight by way of you know you could say like I need to measure you know any sort of thing I have against these iron ingots I have uh, and you can say it's you know one iron ingot can mean to you well that means it's you know twenty of the other things that weigh one twentieth of an ingot. We'll get into it, but you get the basic idea, right? Weight is a natural object that, or a natural um, uh, condition or quality of things in the world that is not the same thing as value. 
things in the world don't naturally have value. You can't look at something and say it naturally has a value. Um, any of the adding you're doing, as Marx will point out in this chapter again and again and again, or in this section again and again and again, is that any of the value you're putting in is sort of like an adding up of labor time or an adding up of labor value in any case. Um, so I'm looking at my monitor right now and I'm thinking, well, the monitor I know costs about like $300. And so it's like, okay, if the monitor costs $300, uh, why does it cost $300? Well, I know part of that's because of markup, right? Like the companies are making a profit and of course, you know, whatever. Maybe it's only actually quote unquote worth $175. Fine. Where does that worth come from? And you say, all right, well, uh, the screen had to cost money to create it. It's not glass. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a specific thing. I couldn't create it in my house. Um, the outside, the plastic uh, exterior, the sort of like shell for it had to be 3D printed or however they made it. Um, and the, um, the innards, right? I mean, that has to cost the most, right? Making the light source, making, uh, all of the things that actually connect the, the, the monitor to my computer, uh, that make it turn on every time that can sort of like switch it around into multiple ports, all of these things, you know, whether or not it's the research that created that stuff or otherwise, um, you know, the production of the components themselves, those all are things you would have to pay money for. And so you say, okay, well, maybe that adds up to $175 per monitor, give or take. And then they get $125 of profit off of you. That wouldn't be totally unsurprising. But as Mark says, the the difference here is the difference between uh, what he calls abstract and concrete labor. And I want to just give a gloss of this before we touch on particular things, but this is important. Abstract labor is, uh, or concrete labor is what I've just described to you, which is like, oh, well, people have to make the transistors and people have to make the glass and people have to make this and people have to make that. Um, and if I were to bear down into that a little bit more, I would say like, well, manufacturers make some of it. Scientists have to research some of it. Technicians have to design it. Uh, marketing people market it, uh, you know, sales people or, or importers or whatever have to produce it and like produce, uh, the, the lines of sale, um, there's a, you know, there's the store end who hires employees who are doing their own version of labor power to get this to you, whether or not it's Amazon or Best Buy or whatever. Um, there's a lot of places where there's concrete labor. However, if I just say, it seems to me that this monitor costs should cost, should be valued around $175 because that's the labor that was put into it. That's abstract labor. It's taking all the concrete labor of like individual jobs and leveling it into a thing. You'll be reminded, of course, of the fetish. And, and the commodity fetish really does come out of this. So um, it's good we actually read that first. This whole thing will make a lot more sense, uh, particularly in terms of this idea of abstract labor. Now, abstract labor, value, all this stuff is treated as a matter of course by the economist. Marx is sort of talking against here. We don't have to necessarily go into it, but particularly he's talking against Ricardo, um, but there are others as well, and, and we'll, we'll, we may touch on a few. Uh, but value is not something that actually is innate. It's something that, as Marx describes, is social. And so the social quality of it means, as because we know our Hegel, uh, means it is a form of appearance. It is uh, something that only exists by way of its relation to other things. It doesn't have an essence. Because it doesn't have an essence, it means that we can only understand it in terms of its appearance. But what we know about appearance is that we can at least nail down where appearance comes from, why things take on the form of appearance they do, and what the social condition is that allows these things to uh, operate in a, a sort of like society of exchange the way they do. So that's the typical gloss. We'll see where money comes into this. But let's go into the, let's go kind of dive right in. So on page 138, which is the beginning of the chapter, Marx talks about natural value. And um, this, is the, this is the sort of moment where he's laying out the, the plot of this section, right? The, the goal. And he writes, um, you know, commodities of a dual nature, they're objects of utility and bearers of value. We've talked about this. Um, Therefore, they only appear as commodities or have the form of commodities insofar as they possess a double form, i.e. natural form and value form. However, he sort of says it's really tricky to find the value in a commodity, right? He says you can twist and turn a single commodity as we wish. It'll remain impossible to grasp as a thing possessing value. Um, they possess an objective character as values only insofar as they are all expressions of an identical social substance, 
human labor, that their objective character as values is therefore purely social. So the social quality is so important here, right? Not just in terms of appearance, but like, let's not lose that. It's so important because it's this way of understanding value coming not from the things themselves, but literally from the relations between people. And relations between people are the thing that fall out of focus when we're talking about capitalism ideologically, right? You don't necessarily think about the relationship between, you know, producers and consumers when you're talking about um, the Apple company or like, uh, for instance, Asus, who made my monitor. Like, I don't really think about anyone else besides myself. When I look at this Asus monitor, I think like, well, I bought this from a company and, and that's how it is. You know, it was me and another person that bought and sold it. But that can't be the way it is. It's not a one-to-one -one thing. It is social. So, continuing on. Marx lays down this sort of history of a form, right? Um, he, he, he speaks about history in this chapter. We see this on 139. What I want to caution you about is, Marx is a very good historian, but uh, in this particular instance, what he's talking about when he talks about history is essentially a logical history or history of an idea. And what we're going to see in this chapter is very similar to the, and I've probably mentioned it on this series before, but very similar to the uh, the Nietzsche and Desaad chapter in um, Adorno and Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment, where the entire chapter is about this journey into consideration that at the very end, like the whole sort of like object of the chapter is flipped on its head. And you said like, I told you that story so I could tell you this much shorter one about money. Um that longer story, right, that ends up kind of not being super relevant by the end of the chapter is this, histor this history of an idea. So um, he says, you know, everyone knows, if nothing else, the commodities have a common value form. This is on 139, which contrasts in the most striking manner with the motley natural forms of their use value. So there's no natural value form uh, heretofore. Natural use value, of course, but not a natural value. I refer to the money form. Now, the money form is the common value form, but where does it come from, is what Marx asks. Why, why do we have the money form to begin with? Um, and he says, actually, that like this is a task that's never been performed before by bourgeois economics. Um, and in fact, like he says, people will try and explain why money has to exist. He says this in a, in a footnote. People explain why money has to exist. Uh, because of price. And he says, this is like, this is uh, the equivalent of explaining that the car has to exist because we have highways or something like that, right? Where like, you're taking the most advanced possible moment of money, which is price theory, and saying that that's why we have money. Um, what Marx argues, and actually, it's interesting, because from a from a position of microeconomics, price theory is often seen as a thing that can uh, attack Marx. And to be truthful, I don't have enough of a background in microeconomics to attack that uh, uh, contention. But what's interesting about Marx is he's not interested in price at all. He's not interested in how things are priced. To him, we might imagine that things are priced based on some sort of um, arbitrary system of ups and downs, a, a stock market perhaps, or um, just the, a, a general market. Like you can imagine a marketplace that every day uh, something happens to one of the commodities in the shop to raise or lower its value. And uh, in, uh, not, not in a shop, but in the area to raise or lower its value. And in, the, in so doing, that arbitrary raise or fall of a value uh, affects everything else. He's not really worried about price in terms of like, you know, the nation or like what we could get people to buy or supply and demand or stuff like that. So put that out of your head for the moment. What Marx is really interested in, in a very hyper-focused way, is money, the, how the money form comes about from the very get-go. Why are we using these dollars anyway? They don't hold any value. They, they, they sort of serve as these little chits. They're like, they're like company script in a sense. Why are we using them? Why, why not just, you know, trade? And so he goes on and explains why. Um, but in explaining why, he sets out his mission. He says, once you show the origin of the money form, and once you trace the development of the expression of value contained in the value relation of commodities, from its simplest, almost imperceptible outline to the dazzling money form, which is to say the dazzling vis-a-vis -vis ideology, when this has been done, the mystery of money will immediately disappear. And what he means by the mystery of money, what he means about the necessity of money 
is that money exists, and I'll, I'll spoil the ending for you, but it's not really a spoiler because you'll, you'll get the idea of what he means as we go through. His ultimate observation is that money itself is a commodity, and money has to be a commodity. Uh, Marx does see money um, devolve from gold. In this way, he sort of like isn't a fiat thinker. Um, but you can read him that way. I think it would be a mistake. Uh, Marx's adherence to gold as the money standard is simply that gold used to be a commodity and now and then became a stand-in commodity. The money form ends up being the money commodity. Um, and then everything's worth a certain amount of gold. And theoretically, that's true. Um, it doesn't matter what it is in the world as long as theoretically it has some, you know, connection to gold. So fiat currency, uh, Bitcoin, uh, whatever you want, right? All of these things relate to, uh, some version of valuation in terms of gold. And that valuation is important because gold itself used to be a commodity and now is the money commodity. So what does that all mean? Well, let's get started. So in getting started here, we get to this really, uh, the, the really interesting meat of this chapter is Marx kind of going through all these like weird little uh, deviations of why money works the way it does or why value works the way it does, how we could possibly have exchange. This is where he's at his most brilliant, in my opinion. He sort of gets to this point where he says, okay, let's take everything away and imagine we're in some sort of market where... Um, all right, uh, his, in, in his most famous of these <laughs> versions, uh, 20 yards of linen equals one coat. Um, for interest's sake, I've heard two reasons why he uses coat in this, in this sense. One was that he was very poor and cold and couldn't afford a coat, so he was thinking a lot about coats uh, in the cold London winters. Uh, the other is that coat, this is probably more likely, coat is a pun on the uh, German word cost. Uh, which is, of course, lost in translation uh, to the English. Uh, Faust does not give us a translator's note on that, but it's also possible that uh, he didn't want to confuse us or didn't find the joke very funny. Marx begins with this question of relative value. And in fact, relative value, excuse me, is uh, part of even the first version of um, market value or exchange value, which is the simple, isolated, or accidental form of value. Um, he says the value of the first commodity, in this sense, 20 yards of linen, is represented as relative value. In other words, the commodity is in the relative form of value. The second commodity fulfills the function of equivalent, which is to say the coat. In other words, it is in the equivalent form, which is to say I can value the 20 yards of linen relative to what I have deemed to be its equivalent in value, a coat. Understand, we, we can get more in depth in this as we go along, but what you need to understand right now is that relative value simply means that there's no baseline. It's not like I can say these 20 yards of linen are worth 20 yards of linen. Marx actually breaks this down later and says it's just a ridiculous tautology. No, no one cares that 20 yards of linen are worth 20 yards of linen. Similarly, no one cares that $1 is equal to $1. There has to be some sort of relation, again, social relation, that gives this sort of stuff its value if we're to understand uh, value in this way. Um, the other thing that Marx says is that ostensibly, all of these things relate to the labor time necessary. So if the labor time of the linen goes up or down for some reason, if it goes up and it costs more to produce linen, then maybe 20 linen, 20 yards of linen will be worth two coats. And then if it costs less to make linen, all of a sudden we get this new machine that helps us make linen really well uh, out of, out of uh, flax or whatever. Um, sorry, I don't really uh, know a lot about making clothes. Uh we then would say, okay, 20 yards of linen is now worth half a coat, right? All of this stuff is related ostensibly via labor. But I think one of the things that's super interesting in this chapter, and especially to people who sort of say that the labor theory of value is debunked and so Marx is debunked, is that you don't actually need the labor to line up. You, you really don't. Like, the importance of this chapter doesn't really falter if you say, like, okay, it's all arbitrary, right? Imagine that 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat because of some arbitrary thing. Um, all right, that's fine. Uh, we can imagine, it, say, people are lying to us about how much labor things cost to make. Say the producers are because they want to make more money. Um, it's still abstract labor. We're not really concerned with the concrete labor of things anymore. That's the point of the fetish. 
that simple or accidental form of value is something that off the bat, we simply need to trust. There's no way to verify this stuff, right? There's no actual honest price, as we'll find out later, uh, because Marx starts to ask a little later, if we have the honest prices, where, where do all these profits come from? And when we learn where the profits come from, uh, spoiler alert, surplus value, uh, e.g. the uh, the laborer's extra work, um, extra unpaid work, excuse me, then we're going to realize, okay, prices themselves don't have to live in this like hugely objective labor theory of value way. The theory behind how commodities interact with each other is far more important. Okay, so we're going to continue to move. On page 140, we get to this question of volatility, right? Um, and we start talking about the relative and equivalent form here a little more specifically. Um, and, and Marx gets to this indication at the end of his section where he says, whether a commodity is in the relative form or in its opposite, the equivalent form entirely depends on its actual position in the expression of value. This is one of those algebra things, right? Where it matters what side of the equation you're on. Uh, if you can think back to seventh grade, eighth grade, and you just like bear with me a little bit. Um, that is, it depends on whether it is the commodity whose value is being expressed or the commodity in which value is being expressed. And so, you know, as things become volatile, as the prices rise and fall, uh, one might find it easier to, you know, explain how much one coat costs. If, you know, all of a sudden 20 yards of linen costs one is equal to one half coat, it might just be easier to say two coats are worth, or I'm sorry, one coat is worth uh, 40 yards of linen, right? You might switch around the relative and equivalent values of things. Uh, it doesn't become that easy later on, but for now we can switch stuff around. We have two commodities. We can always kind of balance them out. It's as if we have the scale in front of us. But I want to remind you, we don't actually have a, uh, a natural value as in weight. Right, we don't have weight. Uh, in, in value isn't weight. Let me say that value and weight are different. And so, while we have the vision of the scale here, it can't quite work. Okay, so moving on, uh, we get to the relative form of value. Uh, he has a little bit more about this. Uh, he sort of says, like you know, whether twenty yards of linen equal one equals one coat or twenty coats or X coats. Um, it's always implied that the linen and the coat are as magnitudes of value are expressions of the same unit, things of the same nature. And so here we get this question of, um, this question of, uh, things needing to be equal to each other. Um, they need to be equal to each other insofar as they are made up of the same stuff. He uses chemical, uh, allusions here, which I think are pretty useful. Um, but probably too complex to go through here. Uh, not too hard to figure out. It's on page 141. Uh, but the whole point is that you can only compare these two things because they're made out of the same stuff, which is to say, uh, concrete labor. Uh, the fact that we can compare them, of course, means that we are talking about abstract labor, not concrete labor, because you can't compare concrete labor. It's, it's, it's too difficult. Um, you know, how much is, does it, does it cost more to, uh, break rocks with a hammer or does it cost more to, uh, enter figures into a, a book for 10 hours a day over a week late? Um, both sound pretty bad in different ways. Um, Maybe the breaking rocks is harder overall, but hard to say. Um, I, I will say that uh, Brian uh, Quinby of, uh, of Street Fight Radio is probably correct in saying that roofing is the hardest. So if you want your concrete labor winner, it is, uh, it is roofing. But, um, you know, overall, in all seriousness, you can't compare different kinds of labor. You can compare the time that they are spent laboring uh, so does it take, you know, uh, I, I need my bricklayers to work 20 hours and I need my uh, Scriveners to work 12. Uh, well, Scriveners are cheaper then. And that's all we really know. So at once we get to that point, once we literally get to the point of comparison in my reading, you get to abstract labor. You're no longer in the world of concrete labor. You are already in the world of the commodity fetish in a certain way. Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, in some ways, these understandings of how the world works are just ways we can live in the world. It gets to be bad when you start using it to get profits, and, and we'll see how that works as we go along. Now, on 142, um, Marx talks a little bit about, again, volatility. Um, and he he's talking about, uh, you know, 
abstract and concrete labor a little bit. He says it is an expression of equivalence between different sorts of commodities, which brings to view the specific character of value creating labor by actually reducing the different kinds of labor embedded in the different kinds of commodity to their common quality of being human labor in general, which is just a, a way of saying what I just said. However, it is not enough to express the specific character of the labor which goes to make up the value of the linen. Human labor power is in its fluid state, or human labor creates value, but is not itself value. Again, human labor power in its fluid state, or human labor, creates value, but is not itself value. Right? The labor I do doesn't actually contain any of this value. I may be paid for it, I'm remunerated for it, but it's because I'm quote-unquote creating value, e.g. creating exchange value for the people who are selling the object that I created, even if that someone's me. He goes on, it becomes value in its coagulated state in objective or abstract form. The value of the linen as a congealed mass of human labor can be expressed only as an objectivity uh, in German, gegenstandlichkeit, <laughs> a thing which is materially different from the linen itself and yet common to the linen and all other commodities, right? So linen isn't so much of a big deal. Like a sheet of linen is a sheet of linen is a sheet of linen. Uh, but those sheets of linen on the market, particularly in that equation with the coat, take on congeal this form of congealed labor where they just exist as this mass of undifferentiated labor in an objective form. Uh, they are material labor existing on the table that we can say it is worth this much. doesn't matter if it's linen, right? It truly doesn't matter what it is. It could be widgets. It could be whatever. Um, similarly, this is where we get the idea that capitalists, as a good capitalist, I can imagine you can do anything you want with this uh, podcast, ostensibly, right? Like, this podcast, uh, I might want you to listen to it and learn how to read Marx and become, you know, radical leftists. Uh, you know, that's what I want. It doesn't matter, though, if you listen to this podcast and think about ways to understand Marx so you can shut down um, leftists at your university and be like a better member of the, the libertarian subreddit or whatever. If you pay me the $1, ostensibly, I am happy to accept it right? Because I'm just selling a product. It doesn't actually sort of podcast or sort of like left podcast or whatever isn't what I'm selling. I'm selling labor packaged as a leftist podcast or what you will, right? That'll become clear a little bit later, but I want you to kind of think about that now. What you're selling isn't actually the thing. It is this mass, uh, it's this object that sort of makes up all the time and labor that you put into it that you've put a price tag on. Once it's sold, it becomes the object again. But in that liminal space of sale, all it is is objectified labor, which is to say it's not linen, even if it is still linen. It appears to be linen. Let's say that. It's not the essence of linen. It appears to be linen. Perfect. Form of appearance of linen. Great. Now you get it. Um, I That wasn't even planned. Okay. So... Moving on. Um, I absolutely urge you to read this chapter on your own, this sort of section on your own. It is a slog. But Marx has these brilliant little analogies where he talks about like how uh, value is sort of like the way in which uh, divinity is revealed within Christianity or, uh, you know, like certain words uh, like the French val uh, valère, uh, valois, uh, work better than uh, the German word Wertstein. Uh, to express worth. Um, and he has a, a, you know, a lot of funny little jokes in there and stuff like that. But I'm just going to hit the broad points because uh, I want to keep this to an hour. Um, so speaking of those broad points, on 144, so we've brought out a number of things here, right? We brought out this idea of exchange, uh, value created by making abstracted uh, labor objects, for lack of a better word, and putting them in comparison with others, right? So 20 yards of linen equals one coat. We've talked about this. Now, Marx kind of gets to one of his problems in this chapter, and I, I really like this passage. It's on 144. He says, by means of the value relation, therefore, the natural form of commodity B becomes the value form of commodity A, which we, we know this, right? In other words, the physical body of commodity B becomes a mirror for the value of commodity A, 
relative and um, uh, equivalent value, right? Commodity A then, in entering into a relationship with commodity B as an object of value, vert Karper, as a, materiali as a materialization of human labor, makes the use value B into the material through which its own value is expressed. So here's the problem. The material quality, the use value of the equivalent value of the equivalent form, in this case, coat, um, or if we switch the equation around, linen, whatever you want, um, the use value is actually just the expression of value. In other words, the value of commodity A, thus expressed in the use value of commodity B, has the form of relative value. So let's break this down. The linen looks at the coat and says, the coat is worth X amount of things. It's worth this amount of labor, right? And that is equal to my value. But in understanding how much the coat is worth, understand, remember, that that sort of equation about labor is how we also figure out use value, right? What is this worth to you on the market to use as a coat? So that use value is then reflected back on commodity A, the linen, but the linen isn't a coat. Literally, the only thing that reflects back on the linen is value. We don't know the use value of the linen. We have no idea what the use value of the linen is. We simply only know its relative value to the coat. And so the linen is in this tricky place, right? Where, oh, well, what do we use linen for? Do we use it to value coats? Do we use it to... Um, do we use it to make coats? Do we, do we, is there, you know, what is it? Is it a valuation tool? Um, or is it a commodity? Or is it something of both? And similarly with the coat, right? Do we just care about the coat's uh, use value? Or do we care about the way, uh, how much a coat uh, gets us in terms of linen? This becomes really convoluted, right? We start to see the basic problem of this whole thing when we start talking about linen and coats. It, it, we use both of these things. They have use value. So they can't possibly exist as pure relative value without some real problems cropping up. Now, Marx explains this a little bit more when he talks about the problem with value. Um, and he says, let the value of the linen change while the value of the coat remains constant. And he starts explaining how you can like sort of mess around and get the quantitative, what he calls the quantitative determinacy of the relative form of value, uh, which is like, you know, oh, what I said before, it, if, if linen production uh, gets easier than 20 uh, yards of linen might equal one half coat. If it gets harder, 20 yards of linen will equal two coats, right? That sort of thing. Um, but in this footnote, a really interesting footnote, you should read the footnotes in Marx, uh, believe it or not. He adds here, as occasionally, uh, also on previous pages, we use the expression value for quantitatively determined values, i.e. for the magnitude of value, which is so tricky, right? <laughs> when we talk about value, we mean, of course, the magnitude of value. How much money can I get here? How, what, what, what does it get me in terms of numbers? Um, but also qualitative value, right? What is it? What is, is it a good coat? Is it a bad coat? Can it keep me warm? And in this particular equation, we care about use value, but we don't care about the quality of use value, only the quantity of use value, which is that phrase, the quantity of use value is so vexing and odd that you start to see that there has to be a problem here. And Marx himself wouldn't have included this footnote. This isn't a translator footnote. Uh, Marx wouldn't have included this footnote or Engels or whoever happens to be editing him that uh, unless he wanted to point out this problem. And, and indeed, it is a problem that we're going to see start to devolve more and more as we go along. So I believe we're at about a uh, yeah, we're about at a half hour. Um, you can take a quick break if you want here uh, because I'm going to move into the commodity fetish and quick speed to the end. We're about 10 pages from the end. Um, I think we should probably get in under an hour though. So here, I'm going to let you take your little break. Um, I'll tell a joke in the meantime. Uh, why did the student who raised the uh, communist uh, flag, the, the flag of the USSR instead of the, uh, the American flag 
get A's in his math class. It's because his teacher said he had high marks. <laughs> okay. All right, we're back. Um, now, I told you that the fetish comes out of this, and I wanted to point it out as it, as it sort of developed. Um, the first moment I really see it is on page 147. And, and Marx is talking about labor time, um, and particularly about like these sort of instances of coats, instances of valuation, uh, all this tricky stuff, uh, particularly in terms of its social relation. So how do we understand the proportionality if we understand this, you know, 20 yards of linen equals one coat? Well, what if, you know, how do we understand the value of those two things? How can we understand relative value related to equivalent value? Is it about valuing the coat? Is it about valuing the linen? All of these really dicey problems that we really haven't sutured up at all come to a head here. And in all of these little uh, um, peculiar and individual uh, um, explanations. And Marx adds, whether the code is expressed as the equivalent and the linen is relative value, or inversely, the linen is expressed as equivalent and the code is relative value, the magnitude of the code's value is determined, as ever, by the labor time necessary for its production. The position, I'm sorry, um, independently of its value form. Right, so the value form can be what it is, but its actual value, its worth, is determined by its labor value. That's what we understand from the labor theory of value. Uh, take it as read for this point, we can quibble with it a little more later. But as soon as the coat takes up the position of the equivalent in the value expression, uh, here we go, the magnitude of its value ceases to be expressed quantitatively. On the contrary, the coat now figures in the value equation merely as a definite quantity of some article, which of course it does, right? It doesn't matter if it costs, if it took 50 hours to make the coat or 20 hours to make the coat. All we care about is that it is coat, right? The, the only way it can exist as the equivalent form in any real way, how much linen does it cost, is if it's always the same. It has to be the same. This is the thing about the kilogram, right? The pound, uh, anything. These are, these, are, these are measures that will always be the same, that have an objective measure that cannot change. And so the coat can't change either. It's not a quantitative count of the hours. It is an abstract count where, whereby we say, I have one coat and I know what that means, right? Hence the commodity fetish. We try to ignore where these things were made and how. Moving forward, we get to another version of this in thinking about the form of appearance. Uh, now, I mentioned the form of appearance before and many, many times, uh, but again, remember, appearance indicates sociality. So when you hear appearance, think society. Marx points out that the first peculiarity which strikes us when we reflect on the equivalent form, again, remember the coat in the 20 pieces of linen equals one coat is the equivalent part of that equation is this, that use value becomes the form of appearance of its opposite, value. So here's the tricky thing, right? Use value has to become the form of appearance, which is to say the coat can be used. So if the coat can be used socially and I understand the social value of the coat, then I can understand the market value of the coat. Use value isn't exchange value. We've gone over this a million times and, and, and we know this by reading Marx. In this case, however, Use value takes on the form of appearance, vis-a-vis -vis sociality, vis-a-vis -vis the society of exchange, of value, or in other words, exchange value. He kind of develops this a little bit as he goes through the chapter, right? He, um, he talks in, um, on 149 when he says uh, the, the expression of value of the linen, in the expression of value of the linen, the coat represents a supranatural property, uh, their value, which is something purely social. Um, on 157, he notes that, um, let's see, uh, it is true that the completed or total form of appearance of human labor is constituted by the totality of its particular forms of appearance, but in that case, it has no single unified form of appearance. And this one's great because labor itself has a number of, uh, you know, completed or total form of appearance of human labor is constituted by the totality of its particular forms of appearance, but... When you're talking about abstract labor, you're not talking about an exhaustive form of appearance. 
Formative appearance is social. And so in order to mean labor to each other, we can't mean specific labor. We have to mean general labor, not concrete, abstract. In other words, he says this earlier, the specific concrete useful kind of labor contained in each particular commodity equivalent is only a particular kind of labor and therefore not an exhaustive form of human appearance, form of appearance of human labor in general. Human labor in general is ultimately theoretical. And finally, on 159, he adds that it becomes evident that because the objectivity of commodities as values is the purely social existence of this of these things, it can only be expressed through the whole range of their social relations. Consequently, the form of their value must possess social validity. And here again is why we need money, why we need all of these things to exist within the capitalist state, because we need to have social validity. Someone, this is like exactly the kind of thing about, about credit, right? Credit is simply, uh, you know, if you take it down to its, its basic etymology, is the, the sort of belief. It's, it's financial belief, right? I give you credit if I think you'll pay me back. Right? I think the money will appear at some point, so I credit you with something. Um, that belief, that ability to sort of like give something to someone and say, it is worth this much, and them to say, okay, that is deeply social and invisible and ideological and totally, you know, uh, it, it, if you want to think about Bitcoin as something or cryptocurrency as something interesting, think of it as like this moment where we have this stuff that we say it's worth $400. But I also don't know if $400 actually is worth one Litecoin. What is Litecoin worth? I don't socially agree that this is worth anything at all. That social disagreement about money is something new, something that hasn't come up in quite a while since like greenbacks, effectively. Uh, fiat currency, it's always kind of bubbling over, but no one really cares about the, the, the dollar to gold uh, anymore. I, and if they do, they're just making a rhetorical point. I, I stand by that. Um, this question of what counts as money does money count as money, is a social question we haven't had to ask in a long time. And it is a social question that, however invisible, is extremely important because we all have to socially agree on something for it to work. So, on page 150, as he's sort of complicating this problem of, um, <laughs> of, of value, Marx introduces this trick, right? I think the trick is really interesting. Um, he says that the coat seems to be endowed, this is on 149, with its equivalent form, its property of direct exchangeability by nature, just as much as its property of being heavy or its ability to keep us warm. It appears to have value innate to it in the same way it does weight. Hence, it's hence the mysteriousness of the equivalent form, which only impinges on the crude bourgeois vision of the political economist when it confronts him in its fully developed state, that of money. He then seeks to explain away the mystical character of gold and silver by substituting them for less dazzling commodities and with ever-renewed satisfaction, reeling off a category of all the inferior commodities which have played the role of the equivalent at one time or another. He does not suspect that even the simplest expression of value, such as 20 yards of linen equals one coat, already presents the riddle of the equivalent form for us to solve. And we jump down again he includes at the bottom of 150 that the equivalent form possesses not only the first peculiarity, which is that it, 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 it occupies this role as the mysterious or, or tricky element of labor of, um, I'm sorry, value, uh, but concrete labor in the equivalent form becomes the form of manifestation of its opposite abstract human labor. Again, much like use value becomes the form of appearance of exchange value Concrete labor becomes the form of appearance of abstract labor. And so value is all about creating form of appearance, which is to say appearance that is acceptable socially, but far off from the actual essence of the thing. It's not real, but it's real. It's socially real, which is really, in a lot of ways, what counts even more. Okay. So a quick aside, um, I think uh, Marx's turn, and actually, weirdly enough, we're getting close to the end, even though it may not seem that way. Weirdly, Marx's turn towards Aristotle in the middle of this chapter on page 151 and 152 is fascinating because he says Aristotle gets close to sort of talking about um, value in the way he does. He, he sort of says, like, he says there's no clear value, right? He says... Um, 
the homogenous element, the common substance, which, uh, say, he's a aristotle's random expression is five beds equal one house which be great um <laughs> uh what is the homogeneous element i.e the common substance which the house represents from the point of view of the bed and the value expression for the bed such a thing in truth cannot exist says aristotle but why not towards the bed the house represents something equal insofar as it represents what is really equal both in the bed and in the house and that is human labor however aristotle just says Bed and the house have nothing to say to each other. They can't be made equal. And Marx says, well, why didn't he say human labor? And he says, look, he didn't say human labor because Greek society was founded on the labor of slaves and had as its natural basis the inequality of men and their labor powers. And he says his genius is displayed precisely, Aristotle's genius is displayed precisely by his discovery of a relation of equality in the value expression of commodities. Only the historical limitation inherent in the society in which he lived, which is to say slavery, prevented him from finding out what, in reality, this relation of equality consisted of. But you could say the same thing about our, our culture right now, right? Obviously, like, the, the sort of, you know, prison, prison labor and sort of, like, uh, I mean, there's a million ways you can argue that actually slavery still is in existence. So I don't want to suggest that we're, we're you know, a post-slavery society by any means. However... Even if you imagine it strictly in terms of um, at-will employment, um, wage wage slavery is like a thing only because I, if I if I feel like I can't question the equivalency of my labor because it might stir things up to a point where I will lose my job and I can't lose my job, it's not so far off from Aristotle. I think physical slavery is an important metaphor for understanding why Aristotle didn't get to the labor um, reality of the thing. I think the slavery of, um, I think the ideological, let's, let's not even use slavery. Let's say the ideological sort of blinders of uh, wages and uh, steady work and stuff like that, sort of the sort of things that we shackle ourselves to necessarily to exist in society may be the blinders that we put on that make it very difficult to understand the way that value works um, vis-a-vis concrete human labor. Okay, just an aside. Uh, just a thought. You can agree or disagree with me. I'm, I'm happy either way. All right, so moving on. Marx finally gets in, uh, in the sort of like secondary section of his piece in the total or expanded form of value to the problem of, of value, which is that um, he says the number, so nevertheless, the simple form of value automatically passes over into a more complete form. Uh, the simple form only expresses the value of commodity A in one commodity of another kind. But what if the second commodity is, whether it is a coat, iron, corn, etc., is a matter of complete indifference. Therefore, different simple expressions of the value of one, I'm sorry, I'm going to read that again, because uh, it's important, and I, I think I botched it a little. Um, but what this second commodity is, that is to say the coat uh, to the linen, whether it is a coat, iron, corn, etc., is a matter of complete indifference. It doesn't matter. The linen can be worth anything. Therefore, different simple expressions of the value of one and the same commodity arise according to whether that commodity enters into a value relation with the second commodity or another kind of commodity. The number of such possible expressions is limited only by the number of the different kinds of commodities distinct from it. The isolated expression of A's value is thus transformed into the indefinitely expandable series of different simple expressions of that value. Or as he says, 20 yards of linen equals one coat, equals 10 pounds of tea, equals 40 pounds of coffee, equals one quarter of corn, equals two ounces of gold, equals a half ton of iron, equals etc., 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 etc. This is an interesting moment because it reminds me of uh, a thing that happens in... Um, uh, uh, Swift's, uh, Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels, where um, Gulliver travels to this scientifically advanced society that has um, signs for everything, right? Like, literally, like, they, they've decided languages to an exact, and so they use signs to indicate all the things that they need. Um, but since, you know, language is inexact and you'd need so many permutations of signs, they have to carry these massive amounts of signs around with them, like symbols and images, uh, just to communicate, right? And it becomes unwieldy. Like, the lesson of it is that it's totally impossible. And Derrida plays around with this, too, later on. Um, but I, Marx doesn't actually name-check Smith here, or uh, Swift here, excuse me. Um, but I think it's important because you imagine, like how unwieldy this suddenly becomes. Linen is worth all this stuff. And you have to keep linen in mind at the same time as you have to keep the other object in mind. Because, of course, linen is a commodity. 
And all of a sudden it is just, you, you are carrying around way too much information um, to exist outside of the simplest possible economy in the most sort of like limited uh, amount of exchange possibilities, right? It becomes totally unworkable once you imagine it past 20 yards of linen equals one coat. What else does 20 yards of linen cost? Or uh, what else does 20 yards of linen uh, get you? Well, then you're opened up. How, do, can I, how, much of an, how much of an iPhone does 20 yards of linen get me? How much of a, a subway ticket does 20 yards of linen get me, right? Like this kind of stuff gets super unwieldy, super fast. And so he keeps going. He talks about the expanded relative form of value, um, the ways in which like... Um, you could sort of have a massive general form of value where 20 yards of linen equals all this stuff. Um, and he, he, he starts, he, he does a really useful thing here. And, and, you know, as soon as he introduces this massive form of value and it becomes unwieldy, we'll get to the money form faster than you can imagine, actually. Uh, so this is the last sort of thing I'll say in terms of a reading. Uh, but he talks a little bit about how this is systemic. And I think systemic thinking is something we should really note whenever we find it because it is so important to capital and it's so easy to miss. So, um, Mark says that the accidental, this is on 157, the accidental relation between two individual, um, commodity owners disappears. Um, when you sort of have, uh, the, the linen, uh, you know, the value of the linen being unaltered in magnitude when it's compared to all this other stuff. Linen is sort of like this, this thing that represents all things, even while still being a commodity. And so when you do that, um, you don't have to worry about like, oh, you know, I happen to need a coat and you happen to need linen. How much, you know, what, what should we trade here that we have in the simple form, right? That accidental relation between two individual owners vanishes. It becomes plain that it is not the exchange of commodities which regulates the magnitude of their values, which is to say, it's not me saying, oh, well, I need two coats and you have 20 linen, um, or I have 20 linen and I need two coats. Uh, you know, oh boy, I hope I can afford those two coats. And I, I, you know, I go back and forth and I barter and I haggle. Effectively, it's not free trade in the sense of like, you know, pure capitalism in the Friedmanian sense. It's rather the reverse. The magnitude of the value of commodities which regulates the proportion in which they exchange. And so at this point, we realize that magnitude of commodities is not something that we determine as individual sellers. This isn't a story about individual sellers. Moreover, it's a story about commodities speaking to each other and determining magnitude in that way. Furthermore, he goes on and says, um, the specific natural form of each of these commodities is now a particular equivalent form alongside many others. Right? If, if, if linen is on one side and everything else in the world is on the other, everything has the equivalent value except for linen, which it has a relative value. Um, in the same way, the many specific, concrete, and useful kinds of labor contained in the physical commodities now count as the same number of particular forms of realization or manifestation of human labor in general. And so everything now is generalized into abstract labor that reflects off of the central idea, the central commodified relative value of linen. Now, of course, we don't use linen. We don't use linen at all. Um, we don't use linen to buy things or sell things. Uh, you know, we could use anything, ostensibly. Um, you know, he says, um, Mark says on page 159, uh, Weaving, which is to say the, the what we create linen from in this uh, hypothetical instance, is um, the private labor which produces linen, and it acquires as a result a general social form, the form of equality with all other kinds of labor. Um, the innumerable equations of which the general form of value is composed, uh, innumerable because we have innumerable uh, commodities that could expand at any given time, um, equate the labor realized in the linen with the labor contained in every other commodity in turn, and they thus convert weaving into the general form of appearance of undifferentiated human labor. And so we start to see how stuff can just like act as value, right? Um, I'm in a society and now I say marbles are, are, are the things that we use to, to buy and trade. Well, the creation of marbles, such as it is, like how, how do we create it? How do we limit it? Uh, easier, Bitcoin, right? The blockchain, right? Mining Bitcoins, mining things from like a particular algorithm. People will say like it's an absurd thing. And, and, and sure it is. It's, it's, it's weird. It's wasteful. It's, it's all sorts of, it's problematic in many different ways. 
but it is logical in terms of following the logic of money um, because it is just one particular kind of labor that then reflects every other kind of labor and conditions it to be um, conditions it to be an equivalent form of its own labor, right? Uh, it's just a matter of saying that everyone agrees that this labor is how we're going to, or this commodity is how we're going to settle the accounts of how much stuff is worth, right? This thing, linen, is how I'm going to know how much of a of an exchange I have. Um, you know, linen, linen is going to let me know how much my coffee is worth, how much my iron is worth, how much my pigs are worth, right? Otherwise, socially speaking, we have nothing. We have no general sense of it and things fall into chaos and it's just individual actors, actors acting individually, which is more anarchic um, in not a good sense uh, than social. Okay, so we don't use linen though, right? Um, and as that excerpt suggests, we don't have to. Uh, linen has no special power. Uh, in fact, it's kind of not the best thing to use uh, because as Marx points out, uh, the commodity that figures as universal equivalent, which is what the linen is, uh, is on the other hand, um, excluded from the uniform and therefore universal relative form of value. And so he tries to create a universal relative form of value, right? Um, the last form of this uh, C, right? He sort of, it's very difficult to sort of find exactly what he's talking about. But C is, um, to go back, C is on page, excuse me while I look. Ah, C is on page 157, and it's the general form of value, where in fact, 20 yards of linen uh, can be understood as uh, the sort of like, relative value of everything else, or we can make it the universal equivalent form and say, everything's equivalent to linen. Everything is equivalent to the, the labor of weaving. Everything is equivalent to all of this. And so everything else is a relative value to this equivalent form, linen. Um, and so the actual use value of the linen is quantified. It doesn't qualified. Um, we never actually have any sort of like clear use value. It doesn't have to be good linen or bad linen. It's just linen. Um, and so um, that last form gives to the world of commodities a general social relative form of value because, and insofar as all commodities except one are thereby excluded from the equivalent form, right? Uh, everything has its own form. There's one equivalent, right? I, I, everything in the world is worth this. Wor it, we understand its worth based on the same thing. I'm sorry, this is very hard to actually get in legible form. So I'm hoping you're bearing with me. A single commodity, in this case the linen, therefore has the form of direct exchangeability with all other commodities. In other words, it has a directly social form, only appearance, only social, directly social form, because and insofar as no other commodity is in the situation. So it doesn't have use value anymore, at least as we understand it. We wouldn't clothe ourselves in linen, we'd store it up to buy other things. The commodity that figures as universal equivalent is on the other hand excluded from the uniform and therefore universal relative form of value. If the linen or any other commodity serving as universal equivalent were, at the same time, to share in the relative form of value, it would have to serve as its own equivalent. We should then have 20 yards of linen equals 20 yards of linen, a tautology in which neither the value nor its magnitude is expressed. In order to express the relative value of the universal equivalent, we must rather reverse the form C. The equivalent has no relative form and value in common with other commodities. Its value is rather expressed relatively in the infinite series of all other physical commodities. And the expanded relative form of value or form B now appears as the specific relative form of value of the equivalent commodity, which is that one where it's like, um, oh, uh, it's the second one. It's not as simple as 20 yards of linen equals one coat, uh, but form B is that one where it's like uh, 20 yards of linen equals one coat or equals a quarter pound of iron or equals 10 pounds of coffee or whatever, right? Um, it's unwieldy. It can't work. <laughs> why, like, why would you care about the value of linen uh, why would you want to care about the value? Well, of course, so let me rephrase. You want to care about the value of linen because it's its own commodity. It's a thing. But why would you want to care about the value of the universal equivalent? That basically makes it useless as a universal equivalent. And so Marx finally introduces the money form on 162 and says, you know what? Basically, if you think about it, the history of money is this history of complication. 
It's this history where we sort of say, all right, well, there's this one individual interaction. It's an accidental interaction. And I say, I'll give you 20 yards of linen for your one coat. And we agree. And there's value expressed. Um, then we decide that linen's actually a pretty good uh, standard bearer for this stuff. And so we, you know, everything's in relation to linen. Uh, we sort of make a little math problem out of it. Um, and then we say, okay, linen is actually, that's what we buy stuff with. It's the universal equivalent. Um, but once we have that, we think, gosh, I really actually want to use this linen. So it doesn't totally work. What's another thing that we can use? Because as Mark says, gold, which is, you know, the thing that works, it becomes the universal equivalent. Um, it only works because, well, so let me read you his words. Gold confronts, this is on 162, the other commodities as money only because it previously confronted them as a commodity. Like all other commodities, it also functioned as an equivalent. As soon as it had won gold, uh, a monopoly in this position in the expression of value for the world of commodities, it became the money commodity. And only then, when it had already become the money commodity, did the money form uh, become distinct from that sort of like um, unwieldy universal equivalent form and the general form of value come to be transformed into the money form. Which is to say, gold existed uh, before it was money. Gold was traded and, and sort of like operated in uh, the simpler accidental form of value, that first one. Uh, so let's say like uh, a 16th of pound of gold equals one coat. Let's put it that way. It exists as both, it could exist both as relative and equivalent value, uh, forms of value. Um, but then once it's accepted universally, once we all kind of agree with each other, like, okay, we're going to use gold that as even as a society, don't even imagine it as a world society, just as a society, we say, we're going to use gold. We then say, all right, gold now is money. That's its use. It's not, I mean, maybe you make jewelry out of it. Maybe you do other stuff with it. That's fine. But even as jewelry it's money. You can melt your jewelry down and you have money left out of it. It's not about its use value. It's about its exchange value as the universal equivalent or the money form. And Marx goes on. It doesn't have to be gold necessarily. Um, the simple expression of the relative value of a single commodity such as linen in a commodity which is already functioning as the money commodity is the price form. The price form of the linen is therefore 20 yards of linen equals two ounces of gold. Or if two ounces of gold when coined are two pounds, 20 yards of linen equals two pounds. The only difficulty in the concept of the money form, he goes on, is that of grasping the universal equivalent form, and hence the general form of value as such, form C, which is that one where like everything's worth 20, pounds, 20 yards of linen and it gets really confusing. Form C can be reduced by working backwards to form B, the expanded form of value, and its constitutive element is form A, 20 yards of linen equals one coat, or X commodity, A equals Y commodity, B. The simple commodity form is therefore the germ of the money form. And so here are the things to take away from this episode. One, the history of money is the history of the exchange of commodities. And two, the money form is only mysterious because we refuse, we can't imagine that $2 could exist as anything but the universal equivalent. Where as we've seen through this wild and crazy episode, the universal equivalent operates as a commodity as well, has its own use value, and simply is put into the service of being an exchange value in order to make exchange legible and logical. Gold in this sense is a commodity still, or was a commodity. It's a commodity transformed. It no longer operates in the same way as a commodity. As the universal equivalent, if it's a ring, the commodity itself is actually kind of like a ring. It's not the gold that's the commodity, it's the ring itself. Being made out of gold makes it more precious, but the melted down gold is gonna be worth less than the ring because it doesn't have the craftsmanship of the ring, right? The use is in the ring, the use is not in the gold. However, if commodity is the germ of the money form, what that means, again, is that anything can be money. There's no divine right of money to be money, right? It just happens to be like the least useful thing we can make into money, like the most decorative thing that we can say, okay, this is money. But it could be beads. It could be shells. It could be anything. If you can invoke scarcity on a thing and say, okay, there's only so much of it, 
so you don't get hyperinflation or whatever. Um, but all that's, you know, way too complicated for this early section. Um, it can exist as money. The more important thing and the subtle thing, and this is something I only picked up in this read through. So, you know, this is a new idea for me too, is that if commodity is the germ of money, uh, the commodity, if a commodity is the germ of money form, this means that labor is the root of the production of value because money itself feels deeply disconnected from labor. It feels, um, almost, almost like a, like, uh, it has its own autonomy. It's minted. It exists. It sort of floats around in the world. It doesn't perceive good and bad. It isn't produced anywhere. Right. But truly, if we understand money as a commodity in and of itself, it also is constructed and valued by way of labor, by the way, by way of, and whether or not that's the labor theory of value or just like the fact that everything that's in the world is produced by some version of labor, which produces a thing that is then valued on the market uh, more than the labor itself is. Money exists as a, as an expression of labor. And so as a result, what we have here is Marx basically telling us an extremely long story about the production of value only to tell us in the end that money itself is a commodity and ultimately maybe the most important and mysterious one. Okay, so thanks for uh, staying with me today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to coming back next Wednesday. This is always really energizing for me, and I hope you get just as much out of it. Uh, so uh, until then, um, I hope everything is going great. I hope you're... Uh, thriving and having a, a great life and really enjoying the book club and you know tell your friends um i'd love to have more subscribers over at patreon.com backslash hegelbun um i think people would get a lot out of it uh keep your eyes open uh, at the five dollar uh um uh, rate we're gonna have an e-zine soon we're going to be putting out new audio content it's gonna be fun so until then uh i'm trevor strunk and i will see you next time <laughs>